while I was at Regent College in Vancouver, I took this Anglican studies class of the professor who was an Anglican priest. And uh, one of the things he was talking about during the sermon is, or service is, your sermon should not be more than 21 minutes long. Anywhere between 17 and 21 minutes is long enough. Like, if you have something takes longer to say that, then you need to find a different venue for it or whatever. And we're not used to that, uh, that kind of length. And uh, that's kind of been a running joke between Ernie and I and some other folks that apparently my sermon is just going to be like three minutes today. So <laughs> we'll see if we get out of here by 11. <laughs> Our text this morning enters into this, uh, the middle of, of an amazing thing that's happening. What's, this section of Mark is called is the food section. We've already seen the feeding of the 5,000. There's, again, food and defilement is talked about right here. And then there's going to be another feeding uh, in the wilderness where Jesus feeds 4,000. And uh, so it's called the food section. And the reason our church is focusing on this during this time in Lent uh, is because we want to focus in. We want to see and savor Jesus as the bread of heaven. And uh, so that's why we're, we're focusing on this particular part of Mark during this season. And uh, as we get to chapter 7... I think the shift from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7 is very yet subtly pronounced. <laughs> what I mean is chapter 6 ends with Jesus demonstrating that He is Yahweh. He's walked on water. He's healing the people who are being brought to Him that are sick. And the way that the, the painting, I guess that the picture, or the, sorry, <laughs> the picture that the chapter is painting is this wonderful kingdom, this wonderful kingdom picture of the the kingdom of God breaking in and touching this broken world and, and restoring things. This, the very last sentence of the chapter says, As many as touched it, talking about Jesus' garments, were made well. It's a positive note. Things are wonderful. Things are going well. They see the kingdom touching and bringing life to what was broken. But the tone of chapter 7 is altogether different. It's, it's dark. It's sinister. Notice with me verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come up from Jerusalem. Do you guys feel the shiver up your spine at that point? Not so much? So kind of alone and out of context. It doesn't scare us, right? But what makes this so sinister is that the Pharisees and scribes have gathered against Jesus. They gathered with hostility against Jesus. The last time that we encountered the Pharisees and scribes in Mark's gospel is Mark chapter 3. Jesus says, if you had read the the uh, Lenten lectionary yesterday. It was yesterday's gospel reading, a part of it. And Jesus heals this guy in the synagogue, and it's on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are irate. They cannot believe that he's actually healing somebody, doing this kind of work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be doing that. That doesn't honor God, is what they're thinking, right? And it says in verse 6 that they go out and hold counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Now, the chapter continues, and Jesus is growing in popularity. He's continuing to heal people of sickness and disease. He's continuing to, to, to deliver people from demonic oppression. And word about him is spreading and spreading. And so the scribes from Jerusalem hear about it, and they say, I've got to, we've got to do something about this. And so they come up in verse 2 to kind of handle the damage control. And they are declaring about Jesus that he is possessed by the devil himself, and that by the prince of demons, he is you know, expelling these demons, that he's casting out these demons. And so when we come to chapter, uh, chapter 7, 
We need to understand that this is not a neutral gathering. It's not a neutral meeting, an encounter that's just neutral. It's a critical, it's a calculated and hostile attack on the part of the Pharisees and the scribes. They have plotted and now they've gathered against Jesus. The Greek word for gathered is sunagonitai, and it simply, it simply means gathered. There's nothing inherently wicked about that word, and it's used several times throughout Scripture. But one place that has a similar context as this is the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the Septuagint's translation of Psalm 2, verse 2, which says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So this is the tone of chapter 7. Chapter 6, we have a picture of the kingdom. Brokenness is meeting Christ and being restored. But in chapter 7, people are, have gathered themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. This is, the tap, this is the tension. The Pharisees and scribes have gathered against Jesus, having plotted about how they might destroy Jesus. And so they come with the big guns, right? And they ask questions about Purity and, and tradition. <laughs> now, from our vantage point, we don't think of purity laws as the kind of thing that would destroy a person. We're used to seeing politicians immersed and just tangled in these messy uh, affairs or corporation fraud, you know, corporate fraud or other kind of money issues, and they still get reelected or they're able to find uh, land a high-profile gig elsewhere. We would say that unless it's over the top, scandalous, they're, they're not destroyed by any means. They may be kind of set back a little bit, but by no means destroyed. But in this context, in, this, this, in the, the biblical context here, the, what a Jewish leader said and did with regards to the purity law was huge because the purity laws had become a symbol and marker of Jewish identity and holiness. They were the means of making and keeping them as a people holy before God. They, didn't simply, they weren't simply rules concerned with hygiene. They were regulations that were motivated by both religious and political agenda. Okay? They had both of these things in it. So the Pharisees and scribes, to the Pharisees and scribes who've gathered against Jesus, when they see Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands... They're seeing this as a really big deal. And so they ask this all-important question, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now next week, Aubrey's going to take, I think he'll pick up the idea of purity and talk more about that. What we're going to focus on is this idea of tradition. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Often when this text is talked about, uh, it's talked about as Jesus pitting tradition versus God's word, God's commandment. And in our context, it's usually spoken of as we're released from. We don't need the institutional rules of the church telling us how to read or what to read or how to pray and what to pray. And it kind of says we don't need all these rules and regulations and, and traditions on those kinds of things. And on the one hand, Jesus is doing something kind of like that. In verse 8, you'll see that he says he accuses the, the Pharisees and scribes of leaving the commandment of God and holding to the tradition of men. But we also see, on the other hand, that Jesus doesn't say abandon tradition. He doesn't say that this is a bad thing for you to practice. Uh, in fact, we see throughout the Gospels Jesus embracing a Jewish, Jewish tradition, certain Jewish traditions involving holy days and feast days. We see Jesus giving us a clearer understanding of what, how to make sense of the Old Testament. We see in the New Testament Paul uh, encouraging his readers to 
obey and hold on to the tradition that he and other apostles are passing down to them. Early church history demonstrates tradition used as a positive vehicle to help rehearse, help us to rehearse and participate in the story of God's redemptive work throughout history and to help us shape, be shaped into the people of God, into the image of Christ. So what I'm saying is Jesus in this passage is not saying tradition equals bad. Okay, he's saying a particular tradition equals bad. He's saying that what you are doing with tradition equals bad. He's not saying tradition equals bad. But there are some today, at least in the church of North America, and I imagine around the world, for whom tradition is a dirty word. And their thinking is, well, since we are saved by grace, we no longer, and no lo- are no longer bound by law, we no longer need law. We just need grace and the gospel, is kind of what they would say. And for them, tradition kind of equates to law, whether it's the law of God or it's institutional requirements. For the most part, both of these, the law of God and institutional requirements, are seen as oppressive things, hindering us from experiencing the grace and the gospel. Uh, and I would say that I know that that stance or that understanding is more nuanced or whatever, but uh, there's some really big things that are wrong with it. Primarily, first, that that kind of thinking is guilty of reading Scripture primarily through the lens of Martin Luther in the 16th century's Roman, uh, Reformation. Secondly, it's guilty of not taking seriously how spiritual formation occurs in our lives. We are formed as people, not primarily by what we think, by what we believe, but by our actions. On a precognitive level, we are being shaped. Think about it as, as children, many of you who grew up in the States, you grew up reciting the Pledge of Allegiance you know, as a kindergartner. And you don't know what words like allegiance mean, <laughs> but you're saying this. And what's happening is you're being shaped as a person, as a patriot, even at that young age, before you really understand what's going on. That's how spiritual formation happens a lot of ways, too. By the things that we do, not simply the things that we believe. Now, belief is important, but taking seriously how we are shaped and spiritually formed takes seriously uh, spiritual disciplines. It takes seriously doing things. Thirdly, I think this way of thinking uh, is guilty of doing the same thing that Jesus' accusers are guilty of. They pit the word of God against itself, thus neglecting the commandments of God. Now, let me illustrate this through the life and calling of the church and through Israel. Okay, So, starting with Israel, when God called Israel as a nation... He delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He called them to himself, and he gave them uh, a law. He gave them a liturgy to follow. He said, I want you to be my people. I want you to serve me. But he didn't say, just do whatever you feel like that should look like. (laughs) He said, do this this way. He gave us a liturgy and a law. He gave them a liturgy and a law. He gave them... uh, He gave them things, specific things that he wanted them to do. He instructed them to abstain from certain things and to participate in specific actions and events that would both teach their minds and shape their characters. Aubrey kind of demonstrated this a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about the tithe. He said the tithe served as a training wheel. Okay? It served as training wheels. It taught them how, taught them, and those who, are, who practice tithing and who are teachable in the moment, teaches us a lot about who God is, about His ownership of all things, especially the, the income that we have. But it also teaches us how to be generous. So what I'm saying is the law shapes us. It trains us. 
It's a good thing. And that's the affirmation of Scripture. So Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Like it really does that. Not because you're cognitively aware of it, but because you're practicing it and you're growing in wisdom. You're maturing. Psalm 119, verse 98. Psalmist says, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. So God's law doesn't make him wiser simply because he's cognitively aware of them, but because he submits to them. And through that practice, the Holy Spirit shapes his life and gives him wisdom. Now, the New Testament church didn't have a a kind of Mount Sinai experience where God gave them a new tradition, gave them a new liturgy, gave them a new commandment or anything like that. What happened with the New Testament church is flowing out of Jewish worship, through the lens and life of Christ, a tradition is handed down. Okay, that still embraces practice, practices, still embraces uh, truth, or still embraces um, tradition and, and law. And this tradition is passed down that both has gospel indicatives and imperatives. That is, things that we need to believe and things that we need to do. Okay? So we, what I'm saying is, as a church, we need to submit ourselves to God's word and God's law. We don't need to be in fear of legalism uh, because God's law is meant there not just to show us sin and, not, and make us aware of our need for grace, but also it's there to shape us, to help us become the people of God. So in James, the epistle, the verse right after when we stopped, James says, As you need to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word only. Their primary text was the Old Testament. It was the law of God. He's saying, guys, do this. Don't just abandon it. And so what I'm saying is don't neglect the law or liturgical practices out of a fear of legalism. The law is there to reveal sin and to make us aware of our need for grace. Yes, but Christ didn't nullify the commandments of God nor release us from practicing them together in community. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, we can see that Jesus is not opposed to tradition per se. What he's actually challenging is the Pharisees and scribes' interpretation of God's commandment and its application in their tradition. So at the heart of this encounter between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the scribes is the question of who speaks for God? Whose interpretation of the Old Testament is correct? The Pharisees were an extremely devout group of people, extremely committed to their tradition, They accepted an evolving oral interpretation of Torah or tradition, which is called Mishnah. And that's their tradition of men or tradition of their elders that that they're talking about. And they believe that this tradition reached back all the way to Mount Sinai, that God gave this the same time he gave the written law of Torah. So for them, it was equally as authoritative as the written words of Torah. Not everybody believed this. There's another group in the Gospels called the Sadducees. They didn't believe that. They only held that the written words of Torah were authoritative, not this oral tradition. However, the Pharisees were a powerful group of people and had great influence at this time. And what they believed about this, uh, this Mishnah, this tradition, was that it protected one from breaking Torah by creating a wall around Torah. Okay? Torah was seen as the law, the policy. It was the rules. And sometimes it was ambiguous. And as time went on and culture developed, it didn't always speak directly into the different things that were happening around them. And so Mishnah, the tradition of elders, was the elaboration of what Torah was supposed to be saying. 
And so it created for them this wall around Torah. And as long as you obeyed the tradition of men, then you were for sure going to be able to, to maintain the integrity of Torah. So when Mark explains this Jewish practice of washing hands themselves and the different cooking utensils, and he says, this is what all Jews were doing. Okay? He's, that's not a literal term that every Jew in, is doing that because there's Sadducees and other groups that aren't doing it. But what it's saying is that it's common, that, that this right here is what the Pharisees expect from everybody. However, if you actually look at what the law requires, the law doesn't require everybody to do that. Those kinds of laws were required only of the priests. Now, there are purity regulations that the common folk had to abide by, and, uh, but they weren't this severe or this rigid. But by Jesus' time, the Pharisees were demanding it of every Jew. And if you didn't abide by it, this purity tradition, then you, then you were unholy, you were unclean. So, so understand that that's what this tradition did. It built this wall, and it was expansive. Oftentimes it was just uh, grossly overstated what the law actually required. But because it was expansive, because it spoke to all these different topics, and because they applied it to everybody, it ensured that if you held fast to it, to this tradition of the elders, then Torah's integrity and intent would be preserved. So the scribes and Pharisees were concerned with the disciples not washing their hands because they believed that this was the way of God. That this was the way of God. If you wanted to be holy, it had to be this way. You had to protect yourself from Gentile defilement. You had to protect yourself from all this uncleanliness. You had to maintain your Jewish identity. This was the way of God, they believed. That this was the way of God. God's way then would lead to a holy people who are set apart for God, eagerly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah who would lead them to military victory, throwing off the shackles of Roman impression. So in other words, their question to Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? It's not simply a question of, hey, why do they differ here? It's, it's an accusation of Jesus, your way is not the way of God. Your way is not the way of the kingdom. That's what they're coming to him and saying. That's their challenge that they're leveling to him. To which Jesus responds, you hypocrites. You think that you're maintaining God's commandments through this fence of your tradition when it's actually shifting you away from the intent and the heart of Torah. And three times Jesus points this out. In verse 8 he says, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. In verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then in verse 13, he says, you make void the word of God by the tradition that you have handed down. He calls them hypocrites. Not because they're a lack of commitment or because they're lazy in their commitment. They're extremely committed to this. But he calls them hypocrites because their commitment to this tradition actually prevents them from fulfilling the law of God. And he illustrates this hypocrisy with the example of Corban. Corban was an offering of land or money or other, something other valuable. Uh, it was offered to God. It was vowed to God. And once it had been vowed to God, you couldn't take it back. So the Pharisees and the, and the, the rabbis at the time, if you vowed something to God out of either just a, a desire to, to honor God in a moment, you know, and you weren't actually considering your family... You know, they held you to it. And so 
even at the expense of your, for your parents. They're in need. You can't get rid of it. You've already vowed this to God. You can't break your vow to God. So the heck with your parents. That's essentially what's being said. And that's what Jesus is calling them out for. Jesus calls them out for pitting the word of God against itself, for choosing to neglect the word of God about honoring your parents and the warning and the penalty that goes along with that. They've neglected that, but have tried to maintain and uphold this severe passion for this notion of not breaking one's vow to God. Now, the sad irony of all this is that the Jews were the covenant people of God, and they vowed to keep God's law. Honoring your parents is a part of that. But they found a clever way of maintaining the letter of the law, the word of the law, but not the spirit and heart of the law. And in doing so, Jesus says that they have rejected God's word in favor of their own, handing down a tradition that fails to reflect the word of God and the way of God. In verse 13, he says that their tradition is rife with this kind of thing. So they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, yours is not the way of the kingdom. Yours is not the way of God. And Jesus says, as you are hypocrites, because you think this way that you are embracing, it keeps you in the way of God, but it's actually contrary to it. It rejects the way of God. So in the midst of this critique here, there's amazing news. There's amazing grace. It's wonder upon wonder. Notice that Jesus responds to them in verse 6 with this Isaiah text. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, in Isaiah's text, that's only the first half of the sentence. So if you would, hold your spot there in Mark and flip over to Isaiah 29. Matt read this passage for us earlier. And this is a prophecy where God says, this is the state of things. In verse 13, he says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, there is fear and the fear of me is a commandment, of, of, uh, commandment taught by men. He says, because that's the state of things, notice what God says in verse 14. Behold, I will do again wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, with wisdom, and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. Wonder upon wonder. God is going to do this amazing thing. The passage goes on to say in verse 18 that in that day... This day when God is doing this wonderful thing, the wonder upon wonder, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom and their darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of God. The Holy One of Israel. (laughs) So in Mark chapter 7, Jesus gives this partial quote of this promise of what God's going to do when people's hearts are in that state. And what he's doing is two things. One, he's able to call out the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes for where their hearts are. Your hearts are not near the way of God. Your hearts are not near God. But he's also doing another thing. He's also declaring that the wonderful thing that God has promised is actually taking place through him. He's saying his way is the kingdom of God. Isaiah quotes, or Mark quotes Isaiah here, but this isn't the first time that he quotes Isaiah. In fact, he quotes Isaiah in Mark chapter 1. So if you have 
your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1 real quick. And just notice the way it begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. Right off the bat, he declares and says, this is who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. And then he quotes an Isaiah passage that says, Behold, I send the messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make, path, make his paths straight. And then we're introduced to John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus. And then we see Jesus showing us the way of God. We see him teaching people who are like sheep without a shepherd. We see Jesus healing people who are sick. We see Jesus casting out demons. We see Jesus coming to people in their pain and in their suffering. And he's showing the way of the kingdom. He's touching brokenness and he's making things whole. He's multiplying loaves. He's calming the storm. He's walking on water. He's clearing, cleansing the leper. Showing us over and over and over again the way of the kingdom, the way of God. Showing us over and over and over again the heart of God. So what I'm saying this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 29. Jesus is the wonder upon wonder. Jesus displays the way of the kingdom. He speaks for God. His interpretation of the Old Testament is truth. He speaks for God. And that is good news for those who are hurting. That is good news for those whose hearts are hardened and who are far from Him. It's good news for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. May we hear. Last week, Aubrey said, man, in chapter 6, when the disciples are on the on the sea and they're trying to get across and Jesus looks out and he sees that they're struggling Jesus goes to them and he said sometimes we ask like, well, why can't we just go to Jesus <laughs> and he said we can go to Jesus we come to him the bread and the wine we meet him in his word and if you identified yourself with those disciples stuck in a boat in a hard time like again we can say ourselves in a similar place, and see the kindness of God in the face of Christ, offering compassion, turning towards His disciples in their unbelief and in their hard-heartedness, and even the Pharisees who've gathered against Him. He says, your hearts are like this, but God is doing a wonderful thing, and He's here among you. And Jesus eventually prays for these kinds of people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Our God is a compassionate God. And we see His compassion in the face and in the life of Christ. So how are we to respond to this passage this morning? I think there are a couple of things that we can do. Uh, we need to see Christ's life and teaching. See that His life and teaching make sense of the Old Testament for us. So we don't need to be afraid of the Old Testament. We don't need to be afraid of the law, but understand that Jesus is the way of the kingdom. And we need to hear Him in this text affirming the law, not abolishing it. Therefore, we need to commit ourselves as a community to practice the law, to practice liturgy well, so that we are taught and shaped as the people of God. Now, this means a strong commitment to reading and thinking about and doing the Word of God. It also means a strong commitment to one another, 
we could figure out what this means together. We could figure out what this looks like in our lives and what this looks like in Harrisonburg and in the valley. It means that we are opposed to this lone ranger individualistic kind of mentality. This is why our church asks you to commit to coming to Sunday morning worship so that we together as the people commit ourselves to this corporate act of lifting up our lives to God in song and in prayer and in submission to His Word. We say that's important for us to do together. We also ask that you be a part of a small group throughout the week because it's there. We get down in the nitty-gritty kind of thing. We can ask tough questions about what is God's Word saying? What does it look like in my life? And we can hold one another accountable for what God is doing in one another's lives. We need to see that Christ, who is Yahweh, is extremely compassionate, bringing to us, bringing His kingdom to bear in the world. See that Jesus is drawing near to us. And that it's okay for us to draw near to Him.